Welcome to Christ Like Thinking, a podcast dedicated to discussing how Christians can live out Romans 12:2, which tells us, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. It was 374 years ago that Roger Williams founded the first Baptist church in America in Providence, Rhode Island. A lot has changed in nearly four centuries, so in today's episode I'm speaking with Kevin McKay, a pastor and church planner in Providence. Kevin, welcome to Christlike Thinking. Thank you for having me. You are from Virginia, correct? Correct. And did you grow up yeah. in a Christian family? Well, growing up, my, my mom was a Christian. Uh, my dad was not, but my mom was faithful to have us in church every single Sunday. And at, a, at an early age, I think, I, I heard the gospel in, in terms of understanding myself to deserve punishment from God. I had, I had received punishment at home, and, and so I understood that I had, had also um, sinned against God and deserved his punishment. Um, but Jesus was held out to me as the one who took that for me, and that sounded like good news to me as a as a young child. So I, I believe at an early age, and um, yeah, grew up sort of right in the fence in some ways. But the Lord really got a hold of me by the time I graduated from high school, and that's what took me to Tennessee. Great. So you went to Tennessee for college. I did. Yeah, I, I wanted to surround myself with. Um, some Christian friends because of my experience in high school was pretty worldly and uh, got myself in some situations I wish I would not have been in and I, I knew that I, I needed to uh, get around some some brothers who would who would walk this life with me. I, sh- I should say that that at some point in high school I believe my dad became a Christian also and mm-hmm. um, today I enjoy a really good relationship with both my parents from a spiritual standpoint. Nice, nice. So you went to a Christian college, Carson Newman? Yeah, um, though I don't know that what was taught in the classroom, actually I know, in fact, what was taught in the classroom I wouldn't say is Christian, but um, certainly the student body there is pretty active, and I I met some guys who uh, just introduced me to some different pastors and authors that really um, helped develop a a love for uh, theology, but really love for God during my time there, so it was good for me spiritually. Great. So who who are these authors and pastors who influenced you? Well, I think at first it was the guys like John MacArthur, but then but then John John Piper, R.C. Stroll, later towards the end of college, um, Mark, Mark Dever, beginning of seminary, Mark Dever. So you, you stayed in Tennessee and went into youth ministry, correct? Correct, yeah. I was a part of a, a church with... Um, I mean, in Tennessee, you would call it a church plant, though mm-hmm. uh, now that I'm in Rhode Island, we'd, we'd call it a large church. Um, <laughs> but it, it was about 250 people when I when I got there, and two years later, I think, closer to like a 1,000. A very different philosophy of ministry than uh, than what I'm doing now. Good good people, still good friends, but it's a different experience. I was, I was mainly involved with, like you said, the student ministry, and Right. Specifically with some of the inner city schools of Knoxville. And then uh, you went to seminary for a Southern Seminary through the uh, Knoxville Extension Center, right? Right. Though for one of those years when I was in Tennessee, I was drove up on a Sunday afternoon, went to class all day Monday. It's about a four-hour drive to Louisville, and then drive back on on 
basically Tuesday morning through the rest of the week. Okay, and then you followed that up with uh, an internship at Capitol Hill Baptist Church? Yeah, I think partially because of my experience there in Tennessee, I was I was just seeing that, um, yeah, mu much of what we were doing was, uh, I didn't think was healthy. I, w I wasn't seeing people really come out of, of the culture uh, necessarily, and, and it was, and yet I desired to be back up in the Northeast because of my experience mm -hmm. in the D.C. area where I grew up, and, uh, and knew that the further Northeast you went, because of relatives I, I have in New Jersey and New York, uh, the more spiritually dry it became, and so I wanted to be part of a church that um, that I believed was a healthy model for for ministry, and so that that led me to uh, Capitol Hill Baptist. And was that the ecclesiology internship that they have there? It was. Okay. Yeah, it's just a lot of reading and writing papers on church, and spending time with the staff, and taking a good look at what they're doing. So how how did that time, since it is a different type of internship, mostly, as you said, reading and writing, uh, as opposed to, you know, a traditional pastoral internship, how did that time influence and, you know, prepare you for what you're doing now as a church planner? I think, I really do believe that I'll be 60, and I'll still look back on that time and think that was the most formative time for me in ministry. Um, I ended up staying, you know, after the internship, I, I came on staff there at Capitol Hill and, and stayed for a couple more years be, because it it was just so helpful for developing a philosophy of ministry for me, which I thought was, was biblical. And so really in terms of how it's affecting me up here in, in Rhode Island, it's, it's, it's everything. I'm, I'm, I'm just doing what I, what I saw and came to believe was, was biblical. And it's, it's really just, um, well, and we, we may end up talking about this the rest of the, the rest of the interview. <laughs> okay. Um, and then you mentioned staying on at staff there, and then it was Capitol Hill that sent you to Rhode Island, correct? Yeah, when I had first come to D.C., I, I, for some reason I had Philadelphia in my mind. I had met Mark at um, in the parking lot one, one week when I was still living in Tennessee. I was just back home visiting, and I mentioned to him, you know, Philadelphia, and he said, why Philadelphia? You should go to Providence, Rhode Island. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was really weird, but um, now I've come to realize that's kind of standard mark. And uh, <laughs> and uh, when I when I came back to do the internship and mentioned the same thing to him when I when I got there, he said, "Why are you thinking about Philadelphia? You should think about Providence, Rhode Island." And really, you know, if you Mark has a has a heart for New England and there's a lot of pastors in a lot of places, but he he felt like he, he didn't know of much going on in Providence where he he did know some things happening in Philadelphia, so. And that's really what kind of drove me up to Providence was was the need to see um, more churches in this this area. Yeah, and of course, Mark yeah. Dever is a historian, so maybe the the history of Baptists in Providence was part of that too. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's a it's a beautiful building right downtown. You would love to see a, a good witness um, the city where it where it is, and yeah, that may be part of it. I'm not sure. You mentioned the, the big, beautiful building, and we talked about the history a little bit of you know, Baptists in Providence, that being the first Baptist church in America. How do you think the, the people in Providence, Rhode Island, think of evangelicals or Baptists now? Well, Providence today is the most, depending on which statistics you look at, but I think most of them actually will, will confirm this, you know, it's, it's the most Catholic county in the nation 
today. So 78% would claim to be Roman Catholic in, in, the, in the county. And so anything that's not Catholic is kind of Protestant. Now, the, you know, Protestant, I mean, it's Baptists are not necessarily looked upon um, badly because of the history, but at the same time, it's for, for those who consider themselves Catholic, uh, it's not necessarily a strong welcome. It depends on who you talk to, though. Now, because we meet in a hotel and uh, we don't have one of these historic church buildings, so, for example, when I talk to people and I tell them I'm a pastor of a church, they'll say, which one? And what they mean is, which which old historic building that I like to drive by, which one are you a pastor at? Right. And if I tell them I meet in a hotel, then that, that gets a, a strange look, and, and people are suspicious. So that, that makes that's a, that's a hurdle we have to cross. Right. Now you mentioned they're Catholic, but would you say they're they're active, practicing, believing Catholics, or is that more of a cultural, historical stance for them? It, it depends on who you talk to. So I mean, I think probably largely no. Yeah, it's it's just just cultural. But there are some some strong Catholic in the area that you know, especially the Italian Catholics here seem to be very proud of their their Catholic heritage. Same, same with the Irish here. But then there are a lot of people who, who would claim to be Catholic and, and tell me that they'll never step inside a Catholic church again. It just really depends on who you talk to. Well, I guess start at the beginning. How did you go about starting a church plant in Providence, Rhode Island? What did you do? Well, it began with just taking several visits up here and, and trying to find out what was going on. And um, actually through a connection that I had made at Capitol Hill Baptist, there was, I, I found a, a struggling church plant without a pastor well, I mean, without a sort of a full-time set-aside pastor, there was a, a good brother named Andy Haynes who was, who was preaching every week, but that, that was really it. And so it was, a, it was a group of about 15 to 20 at the time when I got here, and, when, and so we started talking, and he kind of asked me, well, why would you plant another church when we still need a pastor? So we spent about a year trying to figure out if that was a good idea, and decided, yeah, we, we agreed enough theologically and on the church that that, that would be kind of silly to go plant another one when they need a pastor. So I came with sort of a core group already established that was well ahead of the game in that sense. And yeah, it certainly was a was a blessing to have a people to teach. Because my understanding was that I, I was praying for initial relationships. And from those initial relationships, that God would give me initial conversions. And then I knew once I had people who were, who were converted, I could just preach God's word and, and let him bring the growth. Just keep pouring into them, and and obviously doing evangelism and that sort of thing. But I, I trusted that that God's word would create and sanctify uh, people. So coming to this situation, I had a group of people already that I could just I could just teach, and and good things have come from that. Are you officially uh, supported by the North American Mission Board of the SBC? One of the guys who who is here with me, who is also a former intern at Capitol Hill Baptist, um, does get a good bit of support from the North American Mission Board, but then he also um, serves as a as an MSC missionary, so he raises support, um, and that, that money is funneled through the North American Mission Board, and that's a big part of the reason they were here is because of, of our our work as a church with some of the local college campuses, in particular Johnson Wales University, and, and his role there, and so they were just kind of highlighting the role of the, the church in doing college ministry. Yeah, I kind of figured out that he is more on the college ministry side, and I guess you're on the more of the pastoral side. He serves as a as an elder, and so he don't necessarily kind of 
say, okay, you, you pastor the college kids and I'll pastor the rest, but that's where he's given a lot of his time, so that, that naturally happens. Um, I, I think it's probably closer to you know, a campus outreach model or, or an RUF model, if you're familiar with those. Right, and, and not being so clearly divided is, also seems to co coincide with uh, Mark Dever's model of elders and not having specific, say, college minister or youth minister or something like that, but just having elders who might spend more time in one or more areas. It does, and, and we, we think it's actually more effective for ministry. So one of the things that, that we what we tell our college students who are joining the church is that they need the older people in, in the congregation. They need to get to know more people than just college students. Um, that the gospel's actually, you know, the power of the gospel's actually shown off to their unbelieving friends at college when the unbelieving friends hear about their, them spending time with an older retired couple who lives out in Portsmouth, Rhode Island, you know, and on a Friday night instead of going somewhere else. And we, we see a strong community of, yeah, of an adverse body uh, mm -hmm. that people can't explain. And we tell them, your friends will be able to explain why you hang out with people who are just like you. But when you're hanging out with, with someone who's very different from you and has different interests and is in a different part of life, and yet you still love them, well, that manifests God's wisdom, Ephesians 3.10. And, and, you know, those, those, those older members need, need the college students as well. It's been, it's been good for them, and they've, they've testified to that. What's been one of your biggest challenges or, or surprises in church planting? Well, I think one of the things that I was surprised by when I first got up here was just the ministry that we would have in New England to people who just haven't been able to find a church. So I came up here because I wanted to see the gospel spread and really for people to, to have access to the gospel who wouldn't normally have it as much. I know we're in America and not um, Central Asia, but, but that was my heart, was evangelism, and it still is. I, that's, I, I want to see people who are saved, but th at the same time, I was surprised by the amount of Christians who have been wandering around for years in this area looking for a place where they could hear God's Word preached. It's just not here, and, and I saw a lot of wounded Christians so we've been a place for, for healing for a lot of people and, and uh, just an answer to prayer. I mean, I, a number of times I saw people at the end of service in tears saying, this is what we've been looking for for the last two years. So that was a surprise. That speaks to kind of the spiritual need that exists in the area. Yeah, well, these people who had been longing for this, where did they first learn about Christianity and become Christians? Did they come out of churches that were there and just not really spiritually feeding them, or were they transplants from other parts of the country? How'd that happen? Yeah, most of the ones that I'm, I'm talking about are actually ex-Catholics, so they're people that got, got saved, left the Catholic Church, and um, ended up in, in some of their churches that had reached out to them, but later would find that there was a, a lot that was wrong or unhealthy about that church and have been, have been badly wounded. And I've met a couple of people who just grew up somewhere else in New England and had a good church growing up, but they've since moved within New England and haven't found anything else. But it's just predominantly people who have come out of Catholicism. Well, Ed Stetzer of Lifeway has said that, based on his research, that people in their 20s especially are very interested in Christianity as a faith, but very disinterested in church as an organization. Have you found that to be true in Providence? No, I, I've, I've found the opposite, especially among yeah our, our younger, uh, the younger people in the congregation, because 
uh, I, I think they're they're starving for community and uh, a culture which is so progressive and really um, unchristian. And so they're looking around for for friends and for community, and they find it in the church. And so what we have found is people, uh, particularly college students, um, find this community as a, as a real, vibrant, meaningful community that's unlike any other community in the world. Just to think of it that for a minute. This this community represents the, the people whom God dwells among on earth. And unlike every other community that they can choose to be a part of on campus to say something about themselves, they actually find, I think, a lot of joy and freedom in being a part of a community that God chooses to, to, to make them a part of to say something about him. It gives them so much more meaning to, to be a part of something that actually doesn't say something about them, but really gives it, displays the glory of God. That's, that's so much more powerful, I think. And so we found that our college students are, are actually serious members. Um, a lot of them now, I've, I'm coming up on my fourth year here, and so we've seen a number of them who have, actually, actually I think it's the majority, College students have, who have joined the church during their college years have chosen not to move back home to uh, whether it's New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, wherever, but to have to to look for a job in Providence, which is difficult because of the unemployment rate. But right. um, they've they've chosen to do that anyway because they they don't want to leave the community. The, the church has been has been very influential for them. Wow. Um. So what what happens on a typical Sunday in your church? It's a it's a serious time. I mean, it's it's comfortable. We're not we're not scale, but but there is a, a certain serious, an appropriate seriousness. I think when we're when we're we're gathering together to give praise to God. So the service would begin with just a, a time of silence to prepare our hearts and minds for the worship uh, and a call to worship, and then we 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 would sing a few songs uh, throughout the service. Uh, the the songs would be heavy and biblical content. Uh, there'd be a, a diversity of style there, but so hymns, some some contemporary songs, but having biblical content, scripture reading, prayer. I think people who are who come are surprised by the amount of prayer that we have in our, in our services, and then long sermons, which <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm still growing as a preacher. I'm young, so um, just working on being able to say things better. I'm not. I'm not saying that. The long sermons are, are a good thing. I'm not not just trying to be long because Mark Dever preaches long sermons, but we we do take the you know we are looking at the Bible and trying to uh, apply our lives to that. So it, we, we spend time there. And outside of that Sunday, how do you build community among that those church members? Well, it's it's difficult because we don't put on sort of our organizational hats and and come up with a bunch of different programs and times for people to meet together. What we're trying to instill into one another is that it's, it's really well. We're trying to build a, a culture of discipleship, and so in the beginning, what what that meant for us was my wife and I modeling it a lot in our homes. So we just sort of always had people over and um, never tried to do anything. Uh, well, that's not true. I was about to say never tried to do anything alone, but we we just as a general rule, if I was going somewhere, I tried to take somebody with me and. We made sure it was on our calendar to have people in our house for dinner once or twice a week at least. And so just modeling the kind of community that we're wanting to see other people yeah, reproduce and then encouraging it always and making that part of our membership classes is just telling people to get with one another to, to read the Bible or to get with one another to read books and just they have people in your homes. So just constantly putting that out in front of one another so that 
for that now, that really is part of the community. I, I hear about it all the time, and I didn't even know this. They, they got together to, to read that book together, but I, for example, just yesterday, I saw on Facebook where four members in the congregation, they have gotten together to read through Radical Womanhood. And so that's just regularly happening. So now, if we get a building, then there will probably be a little bit more that we that we do, like midweek Bible study or early morning theology kind of readings or whatever. But but we don't have a building, so it's difficult to do a lot more else, a lot more than just what kind of happens naturally. Right. Okay. So uh, a new Christian in your church, what happens with that person? Is there a formal process of bringing that person into the church and having a new members class, or what do you do with somebody who's brand new? In our case, the, the way the, the conversions have happened, they've been, they've been slow here in terms of, um, we, we normally have an, a non-Christian coming into our services and hanging around for a few months and uh, engaging with us in questions very openly, and we're sitting down and reading books with them, and we're making a part of some of our um, things that we do in our homes, and just kind of inviting them to to, to be around us as Christians, and and so it's it's been, yeah, it, it's been a process until the point where they come to to believe. But I, for whatever reason, the scales fall off a, a little bit later. But when God regenerates that person, there's there's generally a time where we're able to see, yeah, there's a there's a real change, and we feel good about that person's conversion and are ready to accept them into membership. And we would have them come through a a, a new members class. Our our classes are five weeks. Well, five sessions, and and once they go through that, then they would be able to stand before the congregation and share their testimony. We would baptize them, and later recommend them into membership, and the congregation would affirm that. And it's been a joy so far in the in the in the, the Christians that, that have become Christians in our within our church. It's been a real joy because everybody has been able to see them kind of come be an unbeliever and then watch the process of of them becoming a Christian and, and seeing the the change that that's that's occurred upon being born again. And, and so those baptisms have been really, really special. I praise God for them. Yes. And well, and one of the things with that, too, again, I mentioned that we mean a hotel. So in, in one sense, we're, we're, we're kind of invisible in terms of a, a physical building. Right. Where we're not invisible is with our lives. So as we're, as we're trying to build one another up with those, those gatherings are bringing praise to God in our gatherings and building one another up in our in our community. I, I think our we're visible in the community is when we're living our lives together, or just living our lives as Christians in our workplace. And so, yeah, it's a it's a missionary context in that sense as well because people aren't necessarily just showing up to your gatherings because you you put up a sign that week that said there's a new church and they want to figure out what this church is like. People aren't going to step come into our hotel and walk past the check-in counter and go down the hallway past the restaurant. Back into the corner of the hotel, that just that just seems weird. Right. <laughs> no, no, no the, a non-Christian doesn't want to do that. They have no interest in that. In fact, when when we tell them we meet in a hotel, it's it's like that. Yeah, I, I won't visit there. But um, so we've had to find other ways to sit down with them and share the gospel, or work through the Bible, and then coming to an actual church gathering comes later. Well, you said during those months of visiting the church, the person would be asking questions, engaging. What kinds of questions do they typically ask? What are their stumbling blocks, so to speak? I mean, it would, it would depend on the person. I can think of one person who was just really looking for community and trying to understand that, that what this community represents and, and that sort of thing. And another person who was just 
I think it was more of the intellectual conversation. They enjoyed the philosophy. And so it was, it was gauging in philosophical questions and, um, and then for them just deciding that they were coming to a point where they believe that, yeah, there is a God. And then it was just, it took a while to connect, um, the God that they believed existed to the God of the Bible. But it's not, I mean, with all those things, it's not just intellectual there. I mean, as Christians in this place, or as me as a pastor, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to just, continue to be faithful to keep preaching the gospel. And I'm engaging in this just philosophical discussions, but that person needs to understand that they're a sinner and that they need a savior and that, that takes a spiritual work. So it's just being, being patient with them as we have those discussions to understand they, they need the spirit to, to illuminate their, their hearts. We talked about some of the challenges and surprises. What has been the the greatest pleasure or the, the thing that's helped sustain you the most in this process? The church itself. I mean, just, just being a part of a, a growing community of believers who love one another and who have really reciprocated that love back to me. So I, I love being a pastor. I love serving God's people with, with God's Word and, and just really care about their growth as believers. And yeah, I love them. And, uh, and they have returned that love and in large measures. My wife and I went through a really difficult time last year with the birth of our son, and the church was just there for us, but they were just really kind of speaking the word back to, to both of us, and so it's just a joy to be part of this community, to watch God grow something that really, you can only say, that's, that's Him. That's not because we're doing anything fancy or different here. We're, we're, not. <laughs> we're not. We're not doing anything kind of innovative, um, but there's there's something kind of remarkable about this community, and that's that's Him. That's That's His grace. So that's definitely the greatest joy. Do you think that being a church planter is much different than being a pastor of a, a more established church? Does it require different skills, or do you have to approach it differently? Yes and no. I remember um, that coming away from Capitol Hill Baptist and the internship and, and thinking about this, and after having been there, I was—I mean, obviously Capitol Hill is an established church, and it's in a, just a healthy church. But I remember thinking, you know, I'm not going to do that much differently uh, or anything at all when I left. I didn't think I would. It, it's a, it's, it just comes down to just preaching the Word and doing the things that we, we see in the Bible. Um, and those, those things are really transferable anywhere. So in one sense, I would say, no, there's, there's, not, much, there's not much different. Difference, we're going to, you know, preach and disciple wherever we go. But then in another sense, yeah, I mean, there's different pressures and that an established pastor would face that I don't, but then there's different things that I'm facing that, you know, someone who, I don't know, that just the, the, the unknown in front of you, but there's probably more similarities than differences. I think I think we make a, a put a false dichotomy there too often, probably. If you were talking to a seminary student who said, I'm thinking about becoming a church planter, what would you say? Uh, I would tell him to slow down if he's a seminary student. Like, well, I would just ask him, when do you plan on doing this? I think guys are coming right out of seminary thinking they're ready to, to plant a church. I I don't know what I would have done without those four to five years um, serving in another church, and even then that, that sounds quick to me now. Uh, I'm so thankful for the, the years I had at Capitol Hill, but I would gladly have taken a few more now. So I would just say slow down. you young. Some age will work for you to help you out anyway when you're on the field because uh, you need more than just young people at the church, and it takes a, a humble older brother to, 
to come sit under a guy in his 20s every week. So get some, some good experience from some guys that you trust. Go be a part of a healthy church and see it. Be a part of it so that you can reproduce it. And then the other thing I would say is just, just be faithful in what you're doing. You know, be seeking to, spread, to share the gospel and disciple people and, and see if the Lord gives you fruit in that. But if they're gifted as a pastor and they want to plant a church, I think they can probably plant a church. If you meet someone new in your community, what do you do? Do you just do you immediately share the gospel with them, or do you invite them to church, or invite them to come over for dinner? How do you go about working on that? I try to get to know them. I want to want to know what they do. I want to know what they like. I want to know how long they've been here. I just, you know, I I, lo- I love people too. So I I'm ha- I have a, I have a lot of uh, well I I have non Christian friends here. And uh, I meet up with them too. Now, obviously, I'm 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 also trying to share the gospel. I'm primarily trying to share the gospel with them. I'm happy just to have a friend. Now, once once we're becoming friends and I'm getting to know them, it's inevitable that they're going to get to know want to get to know me. And that's where my line of work makes it makes it easy to get to the gospel because uh, I'm, I'm a pastor. So I get to say, well, I'm a pastor of a church here, and that immediately puts us in into the realm of talking about spiritual things. And it was funny, when I first moved up here, we lived in a neighborhood where there was a lot of Dominicans, and so a lot of them have a Catholic background as well, and, and, but, but it's kind of different. So when I mentioned that I'm a pastor, they immediately start confessing their sins to me. Like, this was a oh, free opportunity to go to confession, I think. And, uh, and that, that presented some opportunity to share the gospel, because I, I told them I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get rid of that for them. That's, that's, a, that's a terrible thing, and that's a big problem before God, and I can't do anything about it, but I presented them with the solution. But at any rate, when I tell people that I'm a pastor, that just opens up a door for me to say, yeah, what about you? What, what are your spiritual beliefs? What's, what's your spiritual background? What do you, what do you believe? And um, I'm, I'm immediately in a conversation about, about the gospel at that point. So other than the Catholics, which is the majority there, what other groups do you see a lot of? Are there a lot of secular, non-religious, or different religions that you see there? Yeah, there's a lot of secularists. I meet people who would describe themselves as a secularist. Um, But there's a lot of spirituality in Providence. I have one pastor friend up here who says, you know, the the idea that New England is unspiritual is just it's just not true. It's just unchristian. I I can go to a coffee shop and hear, well, there's a strong Jewish community here, but I can also talk to Buddhists and Hindus and uh, Wiccans and uh, you name it. They're 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 around us all the all the time. So even on my street, there's a, a Buddhist monk who who walks up and down our street um, every day picking up picking up trash, um, and I have a, there's a lot of Laotians in my community as well, so um, you go into the different stores, and there's there's Buddha mm-hmm. on the counter, so there's, there's a lot of spirituality going on in the city. Do these different groups require different methods of outreach? You know, I... I assume so. I'm not too great at that personally. I I, I just know the gospel, and so I'm I'm just trying to engage them with him or where they're at, just speaking with him, and 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 being faithful to share the gospel itself. Now with with the Buddhists, yeah, there's an there's an open worldview. So I think trying to even just establish that that the universe is closed, that there's there's truth, and trying to get at the fact that they know that 
not all these things can be true. I think instinctively know that. And, and so just trying to uncover some of that. But uh, that's been hard. When you deal with Catholics or Buddhists or some other spiritual group, are they more inclined to see a distinction between their beliefs and your beliefs or be more more inclined to meld these beliefs into one idea, you know, syncretism? Well, so it, with, with Catholics, it just depends on who I'm talking to again. So some of them would, would see this see us as having very similar beliefs, and and others, again, like I said, they see me as one of the uh, a protester, and and they'll try to convert me. But especially with with most people I meet in Providence, though, it's, it's, it's people who are unChristian. With them, it definitely feels like we have a different set of beliefs, and um, they are they are not shy. It's the Northeast; they're not going to be shy to tell me that. We are, we'll have a good conversation. It'll be it'll be friendly most time, but um, I'm not in welcome territory necessarily. I mean, we I would represent a lot of what this city is is for. It's a progressive city, and so it can be pretty fun conversations. I think when it comes to just church planting or just the idea of engaging culture, we have to kind of think in, in such a way as what does it really mean to in, engage the culture? A lot of times when I hear people say that, what they mean is is they're, they're trying to figure out a way to, um, they probably wouldn't put it this way, but make the church look more like the culture so that the culture itself or the people who make up this culture would would be attracted to the church. And what they mean by that is let's change our gathering to more reflect what people in the culture would be attracted to. And, you know, as, as Mark Dever has, has written, what you win them with is what you win them to. And if you win them to that, you're going to have to keep them with that same thing. And so what ends up happening is people come into the church because they, they have found something that's attractive based on something of the culture, and then you have to keep them with that same culture. And you really haven't, you haven't changed the culture at all. And in that sense, you haven't really in, in, engaged it from a Christian standpoint. You've, you've just allowed the church to become more like the culture. And so I think if we really want to engage the, the culture as, as churches, there, there has to be something distinctively different about us. Uh, we want to win them with the, with the gospel itself and then allow our culture to change, to change theirs. We, we, we want the church to shape the culture. And so I think what makes our gatherings attractive is, is not something that's very similar to what they're living in all the time, but, but in, in one sense the opposites attracts, right? So... What, what makes our gatherings attractive is what Jesus said. It's our love for one another. I think what's revolutionary is not when people who are like one another are loving one another, but when Jew and Gentile are loving one another. People who have nothing in common except for Jesus, and yet they love one another. So if we can have a community of believers who looks kind of strange to the world, but they're unified, then I think... Jesus' prayer in John 17, 20, and 21 comes true, that in our unity, the world will know that, that God sent Jesus into the world. And so I, I, I wish, you know, more books on church planting would be talking about, about that, and books on engaging the culture would be talking about that, and that's what we're trying to do here, and it, and it is the most exciting thing to, to be a part of, and I think everybody has commented on on the community in terms of the thing that's attracted them to this place. And the last thing I would say about that is the thing that's really created that community is not something that we've come up with or have done. It's just been preaching. It's just been it's just been the gospel and letting that word reverberate in our relationships between the books that we read, 
our conversations, how we care for one another, just always letting that, that word be the center of all that we do. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you having me. I hope as you listen to Kevin McKay, you heard his vision for the church as a gospel-centered community reaching out to each other and everyone around them. As he shared his experience as a pastor and church planner, I thought two things were clear. He loves the gospel and he loves his community. In other words, he's living out the two great commandments, to love God and to love his neighbor. That is the essence of Christ-like thinking, and I'm glad I had this chance to hear about his ministry. Thank you for listening to Christ-like thinking. We always welcome listener feedback, so feel free to send an email to ChristlikeThinking at gmail.com and join us next time.